Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we thought today we would do a little stargazing, but uh, we're not outdoorsy types, Lauren. Uh, well, I mean, we can be, but... Actually, at night, it's more or less fun. Yeah, it's really the sun that gets us. But, uh, but anyway, sometimes, sometimes you're just not able to really do some good stargazing, depending upon where you are. Maybe it's overcast, or maybe there are other conditions we'll talk about that kind of prevent you from doing it. So where do you go for stargazing when the stars are not necessarily visible to you at that particular moment? A planetarium would be a pretty good option. Yes, uh, it is not pronounced as Matt Frederick would say as a planetarium. It's a planetarium, which is essentially uh, an enclosed room with an artificial sky that has stars and uh, sometimes plants and sometimes other celestial bodies represented. Yes, some kind of spacescape. Yeah. So there are a lot of different types of planetariums uh, that all use a very similar approach, but you know the actual implementation can differ between one and the other. But we wanted to talk more about all of the, the, the kind of history that built into coming up to the planetariums as well as how they actually work, right? We didn't want to just explain it's a projector and then go in from there. I mean, That's, because, because y'all basically it's a projector. Yeah. So we could just say it's a projector. And if you know how a Episode projector works, over. Yeah, we're done. Good all night. Right. It's a Friday. So we're ready to go home. Uh, but no, we wanted to actually talk about the history of planetariums because it's a fascinating story. I mean, obviously, as as a species, humans have been fascinated with the heavens since before recorded history. I mean, this is something that we've obviously been really uh, amazed by over thousands of years. It's, it's pretty amazing. And and what's interesting is that there have been lots of different attempts to create a uh, an indoor version of this experience because it's not always convenient to go outside and do all your your work. And based upon thousands of years of observations, we got pretty good at uh, figuring out how to represent the night sky in a way that was accurate, even with the movement of things like planets and the moon and, and the sun. And the Earth itself. Yeah. I mean, it took us a while to figure that part out, that the Earth itself was moving and not, say, everything else was <laughs> moving around the Earth. And depending upon whom you are, <laughs> you might still argue that. Thinking of a specific documentary that Janeway was the voice for. Anyway, so assuming you're not having this geocentric view, even even that would allow you to see that the the heavens move in a very predictable way. It may take a long time for a particular cycle to happen, but once you know what those cycles are, you could predict, make observations that would uh, end up either verifying or or negating the previous guesswork. And eventually you make it into a science. So why are planetariums themselves awesome? Well, for one, you get to look at the stars, even if, again, you are in a place where you can't normally see them. Like here in Atlanta, we get a lot of what's called light pollution. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, you know, any major city tends to have this where you've got lots of lights that are on at night. And that tends to drown out some of the stars. You can't see the fainter ones. You really only see the brightest ones that are in the sky. Uh, you know, you might be able to see things like Venus, which are that, that's extremely bright. Uh, and you might see some of the major stars and some of the major constellations. But you're missing out on a lot. Oh, certainly. So unless you go way out into the middle of nowhere where there aren't so many lights 
or you have to live someplace that has really strict rules about the lights at night, because there are a few of those places, you probably can't see that many. Uh, and even in those places, it sometimes rains yep, or yep. It gets cloudy. Yeah, it turns out clouds really inhibit the stargazing activities. Also, the sky over the southern hemisphere is different than that over the northern hemisphere. So right. um, if if you don't travel back and forth pretty frequently between the two, yeah, you're you missing out. If you don't cross the line over at the equator, and uh, shout out to all my Navy buddies who do, um, if you don't do that frequently... Yeah, you don't, you miss out on the way the sky looks in, in the southern hemisphere, or if you live in the southern hemisphere, the northern hemisphere. So yeah, shout out to our New Zealand listeners. There's a lot of you. Yeah, there's actually quite a few of you. Um, I will not confuse you with the Australian listeners. Please don't. We we love all of you equally. So if you've never been there, but you want to see what the the sky looks like, a planetarium, some of them anyway, can accommodate you. A lot of them have the capability of showing the stars over any particular point on Earth. Like, that's how sophisticated they've become. Mm-hmm. So not only that, but they, many of them can also show you what the sky would look like on any given date. So you might say, well, what did the sky look like yesterday? What will it look like tomorrow? What will it look like in a century? What will it look like a hundred centuries from now? What did it look like back in the day that Shakespeare wrote his plays? Like, you could do any of those things, and by plugging in some some numbers, the computers that handle the the calculations for most of these uh, devices, not all of them, some of them are a little older, but most mm-hmm. of them can take that into consideration and actually determine what the position of the planets would be on any given date, the stars, etc., which Absolutely. is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, they can also be used to teach celestial navigation, and they certainly were used for that purpose during World War II. Very useful, especially uh, if you can't always de- depend upon uh, instruments to mm-hmm. be able to get around. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, hey, uh, it teaches astronomy. Oh, which, yeah. You know, I always I almost left that out of the notes. And I was like, yeah, that's uh, that's a big deal. I guess that's a thing. Yeah. So uh, obviously the astronomers out there, if you want to be able to identify uh, various star clusters, things like that. And a lot of these have special um projectors that will show things like the Milky Way galaxy or other nebula or things like that. And that's important. Oh, sure, sure. But we will get into that later on. Um, Let's talk for right now about the history of these devices, because people have been painting the sky on ceilings. I mean, for for basically ever. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I got a cousin who has the glow in the dark ones that's been on uh, her her bedroom ceiling like since she was like so. Yeah. Also, there's a star map on the ceiling of the tomb of the Egyptian official Senenmut that dates from like 1500 BC. That that does predate my cousin. So a little bit. Your your argument is valid. Yeah. I mean, this is something. Like I said, humans have been fascinated with the stars for as long as we've been looking around and being able to express our thoughts. So it's no surprise that we're seeing uh, evidence of that in in prehistoric and 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 uh, you know, just post-historic, if you yeah, want. Barely historic. Barely historic. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, drawings and and uh, and depictions on things like this tomb. And then we have some early examples of what could be something like a planetarium uh, from uh, the Arabic world, right? Uh, right. There, there were Arabic tents made with holes in the fabric to let outside light shine through, representing each star, or each star as they knew them in, in that time, mm-hmm. um, described in European history circa the 1200s or so. And so that's, that's you know, that's a good while back. Right. 
And then we had, uh, let's, let's switch up to say, oh, I don't know. Let's, let's go to the, the idea of using globes and sky maps. This is really cool too. So starting a couple thousand years ago, it became really popular in the West to draw sky maps on globes. And, um, the first planetariums known to history were huge versions of these, like big enough for people to sit in. A really famous example is the Gortop globe supposedly based on plans found among Tycho Brahe's papers. Okay, so wait, wait, wait. Tycho Brahe? I, I've always heard Tycho Brahe. Where'd you hear Tycho Brahe? I, one of my astronomy professors in college called him Tycho. That's good enough for me. So, so I, I know I know that the Penny Arcade dude calls himself Tycho. Sure. But, but uh, hey, we're going with an astronomy professor's approach. I'm, I'm all right with uh, bowing to authority on this one. We'll go with had, Tico. He had a really impressive beard. So I'm... Th- that also, I mean, that's like credentials in the <laughs> astronomy world. So that's totally cool. So, so that, that was that was built in the mid 1600s in what's now Germany. And it was large enough for t- like 12 people to sit in on these circular benches that were around a table. Um, where refreshments could be served, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so the, so the object, this globe was about 10 feet or three meters in diameter. And the stars in it were these gilded spangled fixtures in the inside surface of the globe that were illuminated by a lamp that would sit on the table along with your, you know, snacky cakes. Interesting. So it's like, it's like if you look at a, 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 a regular globe, you know, that's something that we look at on the outside surface. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's, you know, representing the earth. But this is one where we would go on the inside and we're looking at the inner wall, which is representing the 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 heavens, the heavens. Right. Right. And the outside of it was actually painted like like the Earth. It, wow. it had all of the continents and everything on That's it. That's pretty cool. That whole globe shell could could rotate around the viewers thanks to some water powered machinery. And it took some 10 years to build and, and weighs like three tons. Wow. Uh, despite which it was moved to St. Petersburg as a gift to Peter the Great in 1717. Uh, shortly after that, it was, uh, partially destroyed in a fire, then restored, then stolen by the Germans in World War II, found by U.S. troops, and restored again to St. Petersburg. I, pretty sure that should be an Indiana Jones plot. Right I know, there. right? It's great. And this thing weighs three tons. It, it, what are you takes, doing with that? It takes some determination Germans? to steal anything that weighs three tons. That's pretty incredible. But so the, the practice of making these these enterable sky globes like this, unwieldy as they were, persisted into the 1900s. The Museum of the Chicago Academy of Sciences built their Atwood globe as late as 1913. Um, and, and that's that's about the same size, a little bit bigger. It measures 16 feet. That's about five meters in diameter um, and shows 692 stars plus the planets in our solar system as as holes through which outside light can shine. It's electric and the the shell can spin once every eight minutes around viewers. Interesting. And so this is kind of it's it's like it's taking a note back from those old Arabic tents, right? The right. lights coming from outside shining through holes. And that's what represents the stars. Very much like those tents that had the holes pinpricked through the tent canvas. Uh, right, right. You know, of, of course, this depends on either in this case, probably electric lights outside or in the case sure. of those tents, having a good source of sunlight in right. order to see what's going on. Right. Um, but by the way, uh, a couple of distinctions that I wanted to make here. If you've ever heard of an orrery, mm-hmm. um, that's that's a physical model of the planets in our solar system and is sometimes also called a planetarium. And they're also sometimes included in planetariums. So that's nice and confusing. Right. So orreries are if you've ever seen one of those physical models where you've got the sun in the center and then you have all the different planets that can spin around the sun. Sometimes they are actually 
mounted on gears or motors so mm-hmm. that it represents the accurate movement of each of these bodies as they would uh, move in relation to one another. So, for example, the, the Earth's, uh, the Earth's movement around the sun is different from, say, Mars, which is different from Neptune or Saturn. Anyway, you would be able to watch these and see how they move in relation to each other, see the times when they happen to align, when they get out of alignment. And it's really fascinating to see an orrery, but it's from an outside perspective. You're not looking from the inside out. You're looking as if you were able to distance yourself all the way out of the solar system and look in on it. Uh, right. And and being that, especially early ones, where, where, you know, the planets were all on their little rods and would all be going on a on a single plane yes. around the sun rather than in the true three dimensions in which. Right, right. It would be it would be as if we had a completely flat solar system, which is not exactly true. Yeah, it's, and, it's like Star Trek world. Everything just comes right nose up to each other. Yeah. And also they would move in, in essentially perfect circles. They wouldn't have these kind of elliptical orbital because that's really hard to do with physical with rods. Yeah. But, uh, you know, my favorite orrery of all time is from the movie The Dark Crystal, and it's what Agra had. Now, that, of course, was an orrery for a fictional solar system, but was amazing. This it enormous was... thing spinning around all over the place. That that lady still creeps me out. That was a, an incredible movie that everyone should go see. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yes, very much so. The Skeksis, um, awesome. Oh, oh so, I can't. Okay. Besides, I... besides planetariums and, uh, and, or planetaria, if we want to talk about orreries in that sense, and the, these globes, we also have the concept of keeping track of astronomical phenomena, uh, in other ways that aren't, again, all immersive. Uh, right. Well, p- part of the function of, of a planetarium is as an astronomical clock. Right. Uh, like you were saying earlier, being able to to go into the future, into the past and see what the stars looked like at any given point. Um, and you and Joe talked about a really famous one. Yeah, the, the Ante- earliest one. Antikythera device or Antikythera mechanism, which is a some people would call the oldest computer, an yeah. analog computer. And yeah, on Forward Thinking, we did a podcast. No, I think I think you did it on Tech Stuff. Uh, it was one oh, of the days. Is oh, one of the that's days right. That I was that's out. right. That's right. See, here's the thing is that I do too many shows for too many different different <laughs> versions. Yes, we did do the tech stuff one. So as a reminder, because obviously I need one, uh, the Antikythera device was this uh, this gadget that had been lost in a, a shipwreck and uh, recovered by sponge divers. And it was recovered in very poor repair. It was all these different pieces and some of them were big chunks and some were smaller pieces. Uh, and eventually, it took decades to do this, but eventually we figured out that this was an astronomical computer. It was able to show where the position of the planets were in relation to the Earth on any given date, including the uh, position and phase of the moon and the position of the sun. And you would turn a crank in order to uh, adjust the dials so that you could change it to any date and see what the that actual uh, alignment happened to be on that given date. It was also very useful for things like planning out specific events because you could do this and find out when there was going to be an eclipse, for example. And an eclipse tended to be considered a bad omen. So you might think, hey, this big festival we want to have would happen to fall on an eclipse. So we're going to have a special a special uh, festival that's going to be three weeks earlier so that we don't have to worry about that <laughs> mm-hmm. or an Olympics event. That that would be another example. So it was really super cool. Uh, however, again, this was something that was relatively small. We're talking about like the size of a large book. And so you're looking at, at these dials rather than, again, being immersed in the experience. Uh, 
but it was really useful for checking out, you know, what a, a, a planetary alignment would be on any given date. Because again, they understood that the movements of the planets were regular. Were predictable. And yeah. cyclical. Yeah. And so they were able to do this. And I don't want to uh, minimize how difficult this was. They had to build exact gear uh, ratios to represent the movement of all these planets. And, and when sometimes, you're hand machining those. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. An incredible amount of precision is required. And sometimes, you know, you would have to have things move backwards a little bit and then move forwards because uh, from our perspective, that's the way things seem to be moving. So really, really complicated stuff. Uh, but still, again, that's that's not quite an astronomical clock. It's very similar to one. Uh, once we looked at actual astronomical clocks, those look like clocks, but they happen to have uh, either a dial or sometimes it's a, uh, uh, you know, a, a little physical representation of what the planetary alignments are going to be or the, the phase of the moon or whatever. These have been popular since the Middle Ages. So, uh, th- there were also some of those posh sky globes that could hypothetically predict the movement of celestial bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. Archimedes is said to have had one back around 250 BCE. Right. So uh, probably true. A lot of stuff about uh, that time period. Difficult for us to verify. No one knows. But, but I'm willing to believe it because they were wicked smart. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, we're still talking about stuff that lets you look at it. It doesn't surround you like the, the crazy... Um, the globes where you'd walk inside and take a seat. But that's what leads us to the more modern day planetarium. That would require projection. Yes. And not not like standing in the middle and, and projecting out by speaking more loudly. We're talking about light projection here. Yeah. Uh, but before we get into that, hey, Jonathan, do you think it's about time for us to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors? That would be an excellent notion. Okay, so... Projectors, planetarium. All right. The first one was installed in a roof, on a rooftop in, uh, Jena, Germany. And I apologize. Uh, I suppose it would be Jena, Germany. The J is generally pronounced like a Y. I didn't look it up. Well, Jacob would be Jacob. Johan. Uh, I, I see where you're going and yeah. I approve. I, I'm guessing it's Jena. Uh, any of our German listeners who would like to, to, uh, reprimand me on my pronunciation, feel free. Because um, I should know better at this point. But it was an optical projector. So it actually used light and lenses to project images of stars on a curved surface, the inside of a dome. Of a room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this dates all the way back to 1913 for the earliest of the plans. That's when a man named Oscar von Miller commissioned the device for the Deutsche Museum in mind. So the idea to actually use projection was agreed upon in 1914. There was this big meeting. And generally speaking, uh, most people credit an engineer by the name of Walter Bausfeld, who came up with this idea to use a projector. Uh-huh. He was working with the company, a company called Carl Zeiss, yeah. which was an optics company. Still is, in fact. Still is. That's, <laughs> that's very true. Yes. Uh, and they decided that they would use this kind of approach. Uh, they decided that they wanted to use something that was Fairly new, the idea of um, a, a new source of light for people at that time. Oh well, their their original idea here was was to use those fancy newfangled uh, light bulbs. Yeah, as in instead of a, a, a pinprick, instead of having a pinhole for for each light source, they wanted to use a light bulb for each star. Ah, and they very quickly realized how complex and expensive and terrifying that would be, especially if you want to be able to 
move your field of vision. Right, right, right. So if you had all these stars in fixed positions on this dome, how do you move them if you want to? If you want to move the entire ceiling, right. and that's, oh, that's not good. Can you imagine the heat generated from those old bulbs, too? All of those things. So this this one engineer, Walter, uh, supposedly said, hey, why don't we put the light in the middle and then shine it out on the on the on the inside as opposed to poking holes on the inside and putting these light bulbs through? And people said, you're crazy, except for another engineer. <laughs> and this one, this is a very interesting and, and tragic story. There's actually a really good documentary that we'll talk about. But uh, there's a, an engineer, a scientist, an engineer named Rudolf Straubel, who expanded upon Bowersfeld's suggestion. He actually said, wait, this is a great idea. We can use a projector. And not only can the projector show things like the the uh, position of planets, which was that, that was kind of the initial approach was, well, we can show the planets this way. So now we can actually show the stars this way, too. We don't have to just rely on this as being a way of showing the planets. And they all began to work on this. Now, Straubel would eventually leave uh, the the museum and this, his position working on this project uh, because he refused to divorce his Jewish wife. Oh, So this uh. was the rise of the, the Nazis in Germany at the time. Yeah. And um, there's a documentary called Planetarium that really follows this. And the the general perspective on planetarium is that Straubel was actually a major con- contributor to uh, to this first planetarium, but his work was all but erased by the Nazis. And then the Nazis' uh, attempts to erase it were then subsequently erased. Oh, wow. Partly because the, the company, the uh, Zeiss company, got split into two companies after World War II. Half of it was in East Germany, the other half in West Germany. And to for the West Germany side to uh, to talk about Straubel would have also been to admit that they had bowed to the Nazis uh, demands. And so it was not politically. uh, Let's see, what's the right way? Prudent. It was not prudent at that at that juncture, so to speak, to make that admission. So if you're really interested to hear more about the. Uh, the drama behind that and also the, the, the truly the tragedy behind that story. Uh, check out the documentary Planetarium. At any rate, getting back to the Planetarium itself, it took years of research and development before and, construction could begin. Uh, right. Also, they, they were, th- there was a war from, from, uh, yeah, there was World ni- War One. Yeah. And then, and then the 1914 to 1918. Yeah. So that we had World War One going. So that, that puts things on hold. Uh, construction would begin in 1919. Uh, it wouldn't be completed till 1923 and was first shown on a rooftop uh, in Jena, Germany, and then would eventually move to its permanent home in the Deutsche Museum in 1925. And this had what was called a star ball, a star ball. This is this is a perforated sphere that that powerful light can be shown through up onto the dome like like we've been talking about. Um, by, by around a decade later, domes like this would be installed in museums around the world. Um, especially after affordability improvements were made to the Zeiss device by Armin Spitz in 1946. Uh, he was then the director of the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And he, his, his innovation was to, um, to scale it down from, from a star ball to a star dodecahedron. Ah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. You got a lot more flat surfaces. Flat surfaces. It's easier to, to, to machine. Sure. In those days. Yeah. Machining a sphere is not easy. No, no. Yeah. Um, it was actually suggested to him by Einstein. The story goes. Wow. Way to go, Einstein. All right. 
<laughs> so yeah. Um, circa the 1960s, lenses would come into use to amplify the appearance of brighter stars to make a more realistic star field. In more expensive machines around the same time, multiple projectors, each with their own star plates, um, would let you use lights of different brightnesses to project different magnitudes of stars. Gotcha. So, yeah, it gets a little tricky. Like, how do you represent the stars uh, accurately? Because some, of course, when you look up in the sky, are much brighter than uh-huh. others. And there's only so much you can do with, with machining uh, different different apertures of pinpricks. Right, right. So, yeah, it was pretty com- complicated stuff. So how do they work today? Well, if you were to go to the one in the Deutsche Museum, it's been updated uh, several times yes. over the course of its history. So it's not the same device that was installed back in 1925. Uh, no, it's had some eight million visitors or more over the intervening years. Yep. And now they use a projector that has 32 different slides to create the images of stars and planets on the curved surface of the walls and ceiling. Now, these slides have a fine pattern of holes that correspond to the actual position of stars in the night sky above Germany. It's specific to that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it would be weird for them to have a representation of the sky above somewhere else. I mean, this is this is, you know, above where the facility is. Each slide is a pair of glass panes, you know, like a a slide, you know, that you would put under a microscope or something. Between these panes, there's a thin layer of copper and they punch holes in the copper. Now, the size of the hole determines how bright the star Mm -hmm. is going to be, right? So if you make a tiny hole, it's going to be a relatively faint star. If you make a larger hole, it's going to be a brighter star. The lenses you use to help uh, focus that light so that it's the right size. So you've got the right brightness and size. And so that it's sharp. Yep. Yeah, you don't want to have just this kind of fuzzy, blurry effect. Uh, so generally speaking, you got a lamp. That's what's providing the backlight. And you have special projectors for the sun, moon, the planets, and the Milky Way to complete the picture. So this is a multi-projector setup. Uh, now, the original structure relied on gears to turn the projectors precisely to mimic celestial movement. So you would actually have someone manually turning Cranking. something. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have since upgraded. Now it's electric motors that do this. Uh, and again, you have the gear ratios worked out so that they mimic the actual movement. So, uh, you know, you could just have everything turning, but of course that wouldn't be accurate to what we actually see in nature. You have to be a little more specific so that, you know, when Mars is going past your vision, it's doing so at the right speed, uh, relative to the other, other, uh, sites in the sky. Right. So, uh, the neat thing about this is that you can actually obviously speed things up or slow things down. So you could sit there and say, all right, here's what the path of Mars looks like over the course of a month. And you could show it in in a, a sped up time. So you don't actually have to sit there for a month to huh. see it happen. Uh, right. Or you can reverse it so that you can say, here's what Mars did last month. Right. And then, of course, that sets time backward. And then because we learned that from Superman, right? If you spin the world backwards, then obviously time reverses. It's okay. They all have way back machines in Germany. Right. So they all, it, everything works out in the end. By the time you leave, everything's right back to where it was. So you don't have to mess with your watch. That's, that's really smart. Now, about 65% of all planetariums still use projectors like this. I get this particular figure from uh, the planetarium in Hilo, Hawaii. Hmm. A lovely place to visit, by the way. Uh, so they use standard video, special mechanical projectors to create those images of the night sky. But beginning in the 1980s, some planetariums began to experiment with going digital rather than analog. Uh, it wouldn't be until the 1990s that planetariums could actually experiment with full dome animated content. Uh, now, full dome animated content, 
this is used for lots of stuff. It's not just used for planetariums. For example, there are virtual environments that use domes to represent things like, say, uh, the, the sky for a, a uh, jet simulator. Sure. So these domes allow you to have this amazing field of view that you can then project some sort of virtual uh, environment on. And that's more effective than, say, being in a, a flat room with corners and, and flat surfaces. That doesn't usually convey as realistic an experience. So for planetariums, it's great because it can mimic the night sky very well. Uh, now, this, this full dome approach meant that you could have some really cool effects, but it also comes with some challenges. It's not uh, always easy to do. If you're using a multi-projector approach, for example... Uh, you have to make sure that all of the, the edges are going to line up with each other so that you don't have any kind of wackiness in between. Right, exactly. So let's say that you have a projector that is a certain, like, if you look at the dome as kind of a, a pie, so you think of a slice of that pie, one projector is, is responsible for that slice, the next projector is responsible for the slice next to that. If those two projectors are out of alignment, then you're going to have some stars that are overlapping each other, and then you have this additive property of light. You know, you have... Light from two different sources hitting the same physical space, and it's going to be blurry. It's going to be too bright. It's not going to represent the actual stars. So this is something that has to be very carefully calibrated every single time any maintenance is done on it. So this is true for all planetariums. It's not just for the ones that are multi-projector, but multi-projector in particular, you have to make these considerations. Yeah, uh, they, they generally still call it a, a star ball, by the way, this kind of a spherical construction into which all of these projectors are are sat mm-hmm. is still called a star ball. I think star ball is a really great word. Star, star ball just, I mean, it, it it sounds like something out of Katamari Damacy to me, which oh, I think is why I'm so fond of it. I was I was thinking it sounds like a uh, uh, like like a John Carpenter movie, but maybe I'm thinking star man. So, yeah, it's um pretty, pretty cool. I mean, obviously, if you if you want to have a planetarium, one of the concerns you have is that you want it to be really dark. You don't want to have any kind of other light bleeding into it because that's going to uh, interrupt the the actual view that you want. Right. Um, also, you know, you could go with a single projector, which would be at the center of the planetarium. So you've got a, a, a projector that's right in the very middle. Now, one thing that you have to keep in mind, there's a drawback there. Uh, you can't stand in the middle because that's where the actual projector is. These things, by the way, cost lots of money, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. So generally speaking, if you're in a planetarium that has a single projector, there tends to be like railings and things like that so that you can't get too close and mess with it. Uh, I remember standing right next to one for a commercial for a science fiction convention back when I was 13 years old <laughs> and I had never been more terrified in my life that I was going to end up bankrupting my parents. <laughs> Uh, by by accidentally falling against this planetarium uh, projector, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's usually blocked off. It takes up that center space. So one thing you got to keep in mind is that takes up potential place for people to sit. However, sitting in the center of a planetarium is rarely the best seat. So right. usually right. you just you just make use of the outer edge as much as you possibly can. Uh, but with that center single projector, you also don't have to worry about bleeding into other projectors. Assuming you've got one that's the master projector that handles everything, including the planets, the sun, the moon, all that stuff, you're good to go. You don't have to worry about uh, that. those other issues of are these things perfectly aligned, because everything should be fine, assuming that the projector itself is in good working order. 
The multi-projector setups that, that that I was talking about a second ago are are in those star balls, but I but I it sounds like Jonathan, you're talking about a a different kind of projector setup. Yeah, there's actually there are different ways you can do this. You can have the multi-projector all in the center, which is similar to that single projector I was just talking about, right? Uh, which may or may not have multiple lenses on it. Uh, in fact, it usually does have multiple lenses on it, uh, so it can look a lot like the multi-projector setup. But there are other multi-projector setups where it leaves the center completely clear. And the way they do that is they set the projectors up along the inside perimeter of this dome. And they use mirrors to reflect the light from the projectors so that it hits the precise spots on the inside of the dome. So you get that starry night oh, appearance. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, there are multiple. The nice thing is, is that once you know the actual movement of the celestial bodies and you're able to represent them uh, accurately, there are multiple ways to actually achieve that. And that's the cool thing is that we've seen lots of different approaches to this particular problem and all of them work. They just work in different ways, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. Uh, it just shows the ingenuity of people when it comes to I want to represent this thing that's in nature. How do I do that? And people come up with completely different ideas that all work the uh, you know equally well, just in different ways. So uh, we actually have a, we have a couple of planetariums here in Atlanta that, uh, you know, I think Fernbank has one, but Emory also has one. And uh, Emory's is interesting uh, for a couple of different reasons. One is that it uh, it's a classroom as well as a planetarium. So uh, it can actually double up. And in fact, the planetarium stuff can fade off into the background so that it can just be a regular schoolroom. <laughs> by, by, by fade off, you mean uh, you mean sink into the floor like a supervillain layer? Yeah, apparently in Atlanta, we have this thing about incredible equipment sinking into the floor. <laughs> it's it's the planetarium at Emory. It's the Mighty Mo organ over at the Fox Theater. Oh, why don't why don't we have this in the office anywhere? Yeah, you know, I, I think Ben sunk into the floor once, but I'm not sure that anyone besides me saw it. So I could just be crazy. But I don't know. Sometimes he likes to make me think that. The other reason why I wanted to bring it up is because the planetarium itself has a projector called the Zeiss Skymaster ZKP3. Which is cool because it's it's, it's nice. Yeah, it's from the same company that made the very first planetarium projector. So, again, they're still in business. They're still, they're picking, still yeah. making this one was uh, installed, I believe, in 2002. So it wasn't wasn't that long ago. Now, the one at Emory is computer controlled. It's got a keyboard for manual input and has 39 different projecting lenses of different sizes that create the stars, planets and other celestial bodies on the inner surface of the dome and can project more than 7,000 individual stars, plus star clusters, nebula, galaxies, the Milky Way, the planets, sun, the moon. And it can superimpose lines between stars to illustrate constellations. So if you hear about these constellations and you think, I, this just looks like a cluster of stars. I don't, I don't get it. Then they can actually show the, the, uh, the connections that uh, that inspired the imaginations of people thousands of years ago to call the stars wacky things like Orion. Yay. Yeah. I, I always had trouble with those. The only one I could ever pick out was Orion because oh. I could pick out Orion's belt. <laughs> right. But otherwise I was, I was hopeless. I was, I was a whiz at it when I was a kid. I, I, I had a really big astronomy phase. Yeah. I, I wish I had taken a course in astronomy. I never did. Uh, the one at Emory also usually shows the sky over Atlanta. Again, no big surprise, but because it is a computer system, it's one of those that can show you the sky over any given point on the Earth at any given time. Right. So you can set it for whenever. Now, um, the other cool thing about it is that it's connected to a 24-inch telescope that's on the building's rooftop. 
and they have a direct video feed from the telescope to the planetarium. So for astronomical events, you can go and, That's you know, so cool. yeah, just watch it and just watch it from on the ceiling of this planetarium, which is, you know, you could see a live event. They, they've hosted several live events there. Not all of them were some that you could watch through the telescope. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure that the Mars rover landing, you probably couldn't see through the telescope. I cannot imagine that would be possible. No. But but they do uh, show some interesting feeds from various sources. So these days, I mean, as impressive as that planetarium is and as proud as I am as a, as a native Atlantan that's here, uh, there are others that are even more sophisticated. Oh, yeah. We're talking 4K or 8K projectors. So, you know, think of uh, the, the general rule of thumb. And granted, it's a rough rule of thumb is 4K means four times the uh, the resolution of, say, a 1080 a high definition television. That That's when mm-hmm. you get into ultra high definition. Yeah, this, and, is, this is way more high def than your local cinema. Yeah. 8K even more so. Uh, yeah. Even if you have a 4K cinema near you, 8K twice as good, really, <laughs> is when you get down to it. Uh, again, that's very rough. I mean, anyone who's a, a true video file is cringing when I say this. But, yeah, you can go and see planetariums that use 8K projectors. Some of them have full 3D effects at 60 frames per second. So you can actually feel like you're floating through space. Uh, they can take you on on journeys all the way around the, the solar system and the galaxy. You've got data feeds from all over, like including space probes. It's pretty incredible stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of these things can show over 9,000 stars at a go, go backward and forward 10,000 years into the past and future. Um, and, and right, take you so far beyond Earth to, to show any kind of any kind of data that we have anywhere in the universe. Um, and you can you can composite the astronomers data and, and artists composites. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love the idea of also being able to see things like here's what the night sky would look like if you were on Mars. Right. I mean, that's incredible stuff. I mean, clearly, most of us are not going to ever have the chance of looking at the stars from the surface of another planet. Uh, or to go into the center of our galaxy and check out the black hole there. Yeah, I I had plans and they got canceled. Uh, the uh, other the other couple that was going to go with us, something came up. And, I hate yeah. it when that happens. Yeah, so, so rude. That's the nice thing about the planetariums is they give us this opportunity to journey to places we physically could not get to, and really understand more about our galaxy and the way everything seems to work in relation to each other based upon our knowledge now. And the other nice thing about planetariums is that. These facilities update as our understanding grows. Mm-hmm. So there are times when we might learn something that ends up affecting the way a planetarium is displaying the night sky. And it's pretty easy with digital projection to to fix it. I yeah. mean, relatively. Yeah. <laughs> and so you might even be able to watch something like, here's what a supernova looks like. And, and you know, there, there have been events in the past where they've been amazing astronomical events, but many of them happened before most of us were alive. So it'd be really cool to be able to see those kind of representations, things like uh, Halley's Comet as another mm-hmm. good example. Or uh, maybe if you wanted to see what it would look like with some of the other famous comets that have gone by, but you never got a chance when they actually happened. Maybe it was cloudy that day or maybe you weren't born yet. It would give you the opportunity. So super cool stuff. Um, really interesting, again, to look into it. And the fact uh, that so many different people have created similar but different approaches for this same purpose is really cool. I mean, it's 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 rare when we talk about a technology 
where there are all these multiple pathways that get to the same destination. Usually we talk about convergence where, you know, competing technologies start to fall away until you have a clear front runner or Mm -hmm. maybe two possible ones. But with this, there are lots of different ways. Oh, yeah. And all of these interactions with with multiple disciplines of of bringing together the the knowledge that we have been gathering over the centuries about the universe around us, along with the optics fields that have let us use these technologies to to project stuff onto a ceiling. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it sounds it sounds so ludicrously simple when you say it that way. Right. but yeah, all you have it, to do is really awe inspiring. Go to go to a planetarium, guys. Yeah. Go to a planetarium. And uh and especially if the, the projector is something that's that's in view, take a really good look at that thing because send us pictures of it if they let you. They're pretty phenomenal, yeah, yeah. And if you work at a facility that has a planetarium and you think, hey, the tech stuff guys, they should really go and see this place, let us know because we totally would go. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean I like Pink Floyd as much as the next guy, so one of the planetariums in Atlanta would do a Pink Floyd show. Ah, uh, I yeah. see. And there would be a little lasers that would go on inside <laughs> and stuff. Um, not really my scene, actually. I just, I like to reference it. But no, we, we really do find this kind of stuff fascinating. So guys, if there's a technology that you find fascinating, which you've always wanted to know more about, you want to know the history, you want to know how it works, you want to know the, the, the social implications, how is it culturally significant, anything like that, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.